people like to say you're either born to be an entrepreneur or not. I do not agree with that. You either have an entrepreneurial fire in you or you do not, I think is a better way to say it. And by the way, that fire may be here this year. It may not be there five years from now or may be just the opposite. It comes at different times. I think everybody and anybody can catch this entrepreneurial fire. And once it gets in you, you can't deny it. Welcome to The In Factor, conversations about how great entrepreneurs started, stumbled, and succeeded. I'm Rebecca White, and today's podcast features Alan Clary, entrepreneurship educator and co-founder and director of Investor Relations at the Tampa Bay Wave, which is an entrepreneurial hub for tech companies to build, launch, and grow their businesses. In this episode, Alan grants us access to some of the invaluable concepts in his new book, Quit to Start, How to Discover Your Best Idea, Gain the Confidence, and Plan Your Escape. Please enjoy this exciting conversation with Alan Clary. So Alan, I am so pleased and delighted to have the chance to sit down and talk to you today. As I've told you before, you're one of my favorite people, and I really look forward to every conversation we have because I usually leave feeling inspired and better about the world. So on a day like today, barely a week into the U.S. response to this COVID-19 virus, all of us need some positive inspiration. And I was excited that we were going to get the chance to have this conversation in spite of everything that's going on for everybody. And I was really interested because I saw that you'd written a blog today talking about your new book, Quit to Start, How to Discover Your Best Idea, Gain the Confidence and Plan Your Escape which is kind of a risky thing to do in the environment that we're all experiencing right now, where everything's uncertain and everything seems to be pulled out right from under our feet. So I'd like to start by asking you a little bit about the book and maybe, you know, why you wrote a book about quitting and what led you to that and what your thoughts are today about those people who are sitting out there at a job, they were very close or maybe have already taken that leap. And now all of a sudden their world is turned upside down like the rest of us. Right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Rebecca. I appreciate the being on your show. Like I was telling you last week, I binge listened to previous podcasts and I've really, it's an honor to follow a lot of the company that you had on this, on this show. So I'm excited to do it. You know, what an interesting moment. I feel like we're forever going to be bonded now because we're getting to do this show during the middle of this crisis. That's not necessarily a good thing, but we'll forever have this experience. We all remember who we were with and where we were at when certain crises have happened. So we're in the middle of this one. This is a long protracted situation. I'm in my home, you know, trapped right now with my family. And that's a good, a good situation if you're going to be trapped somewhere and you're, you're at home as well. And we're in the middle of this coronavirus pandemic. So Really, that's honestly the least of our concerns. I think I can speak for you. It's the economic impact right now that's that's unfolding. So, and that's the segue into you know entrepreneurship and where we are. We'll get into the Tampa Bay Wave in a few minutes and all the work I'm doing on the side to help wave companies and which is really relevant. But you know, I did write that that blog post this morning on Medium, and the title was called "Did I Write the Wrong Book?" (laughs) Question mark. I love that. (laughs) <laughs> because, Self-reflection, right? Yeah. I just wanted to be honest and try to stimulate, and I wanted to be honest about how I was feeling at the moment. And honestly, I'm not as insecure as that title lends itself. Back up a little bit about the title of the book, Quit to Start. Really, 
two things really. First of all, I'm a kind of a bold, audacious person, generally speaking. I don't like to do anything that's going to be soft and weak. So I, I would never write a book that didn't have a punchy, provocative title. I just, this was my first book. And number two, you know, I wanted to, you know, write something that I thought would tap into the essence of entrepreneurship, which is people that generally speaking, want to take control of their world, their life and do big and bold things. And the idea of quitting something to start something is just powerful. I, I loved that feeling. It came to me, it was like an epiphany. The way this started, I knew I wanted to write a book. Really, it's, you'll appreciate this, Rebecca. It started with students. You know, I teach an entrepreneurship class at University of South Florida. It's a very large class of 50 students, plus or minus. And it's senior level class, undergrads. And so it's kind of a cool catching these 22-year-old-ish students. And I bring a guest speaker every week because as you know, I've 20 years in the community, Rebecca, you know, you and I both, we know a lot of founders and entrepreneurs. That's why you can have this podcast and I can have that class. And so every week I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to lecture very little. I'm going to try to bring as many real world entrepreneurs into this room as possible because I don't think you can learn entrepreneurship in a classroom. I'm sorry, much less in a classroom or in a book. The closest you can learn it from doing it yourself is to hear great stories and storytelling, as we know, is like the number one way to learn anything. And so that's what I've done for the last four years. And some of my students say, hey, it's like a TED talk every week. And I love that. And I go sit down practically cross-legged in the back of the room when I get my speakers up there. You know, I chose to not do it fireside in interview style. I just say, the room is yours. They say, hey, Alan, what do I come and talk about? They're used to pitching their company and telling their company story. I said, I don't want you to do that. I want you to come in and tell your personal story and your personal entrepreneurial journey story. And I want you to especially focus on picking it up as a child, really middle school, high school, wherever, and then walk us through your 20s in a very slow way. I want them to see how the stage was set. And I want these students to especially see that you weren't really special, probably. You probably weren't exceptional. In fact, you probably were the opposite. I want them to, I want them to relate, not to where your success is today. In fact, don't talk much about it today. Talk about being a young person. So this has been going on for a few years, and my students have just given me, well, there's always a handful of them that always give me a lot of great feedback. And a few of them come back and revisit and they were pushing me to do something like, they were like, you're not, you got to capture this, you know, and podcast book, what are you doing? And I don't bring recording devices into the room because I want these founders to open up and be intimate and be honest. I've had our founders, guest speakers get emotional in the room, right? Because sometimes they're telling parts of their story they never told anybody. It's kind of safe to tell a group of kids, if you will. So my students were kind of pressuring me to take it next level. Where's your social media? Where's your podcast? Why aren't you, you know, you're doing this great stuff. And so the book kind of thing became, okay, I think it's a book for me. And first, Rebecca, I was just going to interview 100 entrepreneurs and bake it into a book. And that's where I was headed. In fact, my first interview with Benson Reisman, previous, you know, that is quite special. Previous guest there. on our podcast. Yeah, right. friend of mine. Yeah. Benson, it's interesting. Our mutual friend introduced me to Benson. I, then I learned that he's a University of Tampa graduate alumni and incredible entrepreneur and, you know, doesn't live in the city, which is also interesting when someone comes in, a bit of a celebrity in my mind. And I got a few minutes with him and and then I was on the hook for this book. But it was really going to be an interview baked up kind of benign book, right? Then I was able to do my homework on book writing and the idea of writing a book that was maybe a little more provocative than that. And it would have a little more of a theme. And actually, I had a book coach who I paid a little bit of money to actually to coach me on writing a book and the mistakes that people make with books. And plenty of people can write a book, but can you really get people to really want to read it and create a following for that? And so that's when I did a bit of a pivot with how I approached it. And that's how Quit to Start became 
the title and the theme. It was a light bulb moment. I love that. You know, you and I have talked before with some of the students at the University of Tampa who have been trying to figure out, is it time to quit? I'm working and working on this idea. And I know this book is going to help and probably already has helped a lot of people kind of figure out what that formula is, because that's a really, really tough thing to do. And a really scary thing, even in the best of times. And sometimes life sort of pushes us there. One of the topics in your book, there's a lot of topics and stories of resiliency. And Mm -hmm. interestingly, this whole podcast came about because of an experience I had with a student who ended up walking out of my class and the entire program when we had a pretty lengthy conversation about failure and the fact that failure is a part of success and that you're going to have to experience failure along the pathway to success. And it really jolted me. And I started to do some research in that area and saw that, you know, maybe not uncommonly, but a lot of our young people don't have a lot of resilience. And it may be because they haven't built that muscle yet. You know, they haven't had some experiences. We're all getting some experience right now with the times that we're living in. But can you talk a little bit about resilience? Because that's one of the topics I like to focus on in this podcast is, you know, what are some of the struggles and the difficulties that a startup should anticipate if they decide they want to quit? And how do they prepare for that? How do they build that resiliency muscle? So I have to start by quoting something from my book. I have a chapter, a mini chapter called Failure is Overrated. It'd be remiss if I didn't just go with that in the for a moment. For sure, we talk about failure in this classroom. All of our speakers, we talk, it's a quite circulated topic in entrepreneurship and how it's, it's a necessary path to getting to where you need to go. In fact, I had a venture capitalist speak to my class last year. He's a very good friend of mine out of Seattle. And he said they will not invest in a company that the founder has not had at least one major failure yet. And he was dead serious about that. It was a policy. So it's real that failure and stumbling and struggling. And and I liked what Nick Freeman said on his previous podcast with you. He talked about micro failures versus catastrophic failures, right? I thought that was great because I think we none of us really want catastrophic failures. And in fact, that's something that you know should be avoided at all costs, but definitely stumbles and micro failures, even ones that hurt are important and they fail forward. Failing forward, I think are important. But I say failures overrated. I got a chapter because I like to clarify that, you know, that said, every founder I know or myself and the ones I've been around and anyone I've ever seen be successful in any inter- interviews I've conducted or, or interviews I've read, et cetera, et cetera, they all had a massive fear of failure in the drive and lead up to what they were accomplishing. So it's this interesting constructive, creative tension between knowing that failures can be okay, but it's really painful and you want to avoid it, but also knowing that you cannot fail. I cannot fail. Failure is not an option. I must do everything possible for this to not fail. So it's like, it's just a really interesting thing to have two things in your mind. And frankly, I would coach founder and entrepreneurs to not have that in their mind as I were coaching one on the way up. Now, once they did fail or stumble, then I could use that information to help them kind of feel better, dust themselves off and get back in it. But I wouldn't even want that to be a factor, be like any other competition in life. So I know you probably end up clarifying that at some point, but I think it's something I I like to talk about in the book. And I like to call it a massive fear of failure. In fact, I see it, Rebecca, in all the studies and research interviews I did for the book. And even with myself, like a massive fear of failure is something that they all successful entrepreneurs kind of have. 
And in fact, mm -hmm. I would argue that it might be the single most powerful source of energy and success that all successful entrepreneurs have. I know that's, I don't mean to be counter because I do agree of you, of course, but at the same time, I think this is really, really important, this element of massive fear of failure. And then if you do struggle and fail, then you, the, how you cope with it is with the thinking that, you, that you've just laid out. Then you can say, okay, wait a minute. What did I learn? Let me pick myself up. Let me get back in the game. I'm not dead. And then you got to hear, okay, this was part of the process. Let me get back in. Very similar to a sporting analogy, right? Nobody ever tries to throw an interception. And so the coach, the job of the coach is to say, hey, guess what? This is going to happen. But you're never going out there thinking you're going to throw an interception. You know, that should be the furthest right. thing from your mind. You should be thinking about nothing but visualizing, connecting with your receiver and connecting with the score. Hope that makes sense. Yeah. And do you think it's how we define failure? Because, mm. you know, I heard, I think it was Sarah Blakely said, you know, that she learned early on that failure was about not trying and not experimenting. And in some ways, I kind of see that that's what we're talking about here. There's the fear of failure, meaning stopping, you know, getting yeah. to the point where we're done versus the fear of an outcome that's an unexpected outcome. I hear what you're saying. It's really interesting. Yeah. The massive, you know, it's failure is not an option, yeah. I think, versus understanding that failure is part of that success I, process. It's it, a great it is, it? conversation it's, and a great it, it, juxtaposition. It kind of, yeah, it works together. To add to what you said, maybe the way I would kind of build on that is to say, same with the, you know, I don't like to get into too many sports analogies, but the same thing is that you can't be so afraid of failure that you're not executing, or you can't be so afraid of failure that you're tight and you're not making good, clear decisions and you're playing it too safe and conservative and you're not thinking creatively and openly, you're not taking chances, you're being afraid, you're afraid, you're afraid. So that, that's ultimately, I think, what the essence of what you're saying and what Sarah is talking about. You have to be willing to take risks, take the chance, oh, if this doesn't work, we're going to try something else. If that doesn't work, we're going to do something else. And it's kind of like micro failure, back to micro failures, like making stumbles along the way. You want your ultimate strategy to be as correct as possible. You want to make those mistakes as least expensive and least painful as possible. Even those are recoverable. So I think that's the best way I would say about it is that it's got to be a fear of failure combined with the willingness to take chances and to experiment and do things. Someone more articulate than me can really define that better. I think I need to go work on that because I think it's so important that those two things coexist in the same concept. Yeah, it gives me a lot to think about too. And yeah. as much as I experience it, you know, in my own life, with the people I work with, with the students, I think it's still something we can spend a lot more time on. Very important though, very critical. You know, one of the things that I talk with students a lot about is building up some sort of a network, some sort of a plan for how they can cope when they do have outcomes that they don't want. And right. I think sometimes just knowing that they're coming and having something in place can really help mitigate some of that yes. fear that goes along with it. Yes. yes. Could I add to that? Yeah, really sure. Quick? Because I think that actually ties into a previous question you said about or maybe where you're going with this is that, you know, what would be the number one thing that a founder or an entrepreneur, an aspiring entrepreneur would want to have around them before they venture out into whatever they're going to pursue and that is exactly what you said is, you know, the resources that you put around you, the people that you put around you, both in your team and outside of your team and all around you and, and even the amount of money that you can scrape together and all of the angles that you work into your business and your, and your venture. Ultimately, you and I both know, the, even though you're putting those together for success, ultimately, if and when you, you do stumble large or small, it's those people 
all those stakeholders around you that you've been able to collect, those are the people that actually are your support group for when that happens. Right. And if you don't have those people and resources around you building what you're building along the way, then when you do stumble and fail, you don't easily get back up because we need people and resources to get back up and go and get back in the game. Right, right. Now, you talk in your book, as we said, it's about, about when to quit. And you mentioned that it's not about quitting badly, abruptly, too soon. You're not encouraging everybody to just, they pick up your book and read it, and the next day they just walk in uh, without that safety net that we just talked about. Mm -hmm. But you developed a model that you call the quit zone. Would you unpack that idea and tell us a little bit more about when's the best time to quit? Yeah. So that's the big question, right? In all disclosure, I use the quit hook in the book cover, the title it's as a hook is to really get people's attention only so I can tell them not to quit immediately. Right. So that <laughs> it's like, cause I know everybody kind of loves the idea of the quit and wouldn't love to, but ultimately the ultimate idea in the book immediately says, okay, we know that's where you want to go and you want to make your big move, but you, you need to have a lot of things in place to do that correctly so many things, including timing. You said when, right? But way before the when, all the things you have to put in place. First of all, you know, the little uh, diagram that I created called the quit zone talks about, well, first of all, capability has to meet opportunity, right? If you just are frustrated, that's not enough. I mean, we all get frustrated and that's a lot of the emotional tap-in that we're talking about with, you know, wanting to quit a job to do something. But you ultimately, to be successful, you, bet you need to be able to intersect capability with opportunity. So there's plenty of people that have plenty of capability. They have programming skills or they have food preparation, delivery you know, skills, they have organizational skills. They have even have marketable skills, marketing. Any, all the job that they do in their paid job is a skill that they theoretically could take out into the market and free market is independently. So that capability is there. But opportunity, if they don't have the opportunity, you can't go. Opportunity, what does opportunity mean? Opportunity means, hey, do you have enough savings saved up in your bank account that, that ties in with opportunity? Do you have a starting client? And I wouldn't put those in the necessary order. I would actually start with, you know, the order would be a starting client or a customer would be the first thing you would want to have as an opportunity. If someone's ready and willing to pay for your capability and your service, right? So, and it, like I said, it is opportunity it talks about money, whether it's your own money or investor money, customers, client, the opportunity has to do with conditions. Look at what we're dealing with the economy right now. The conditions have to be right for that opportunity to be there to meet your capability. But then that's not enough. You need to have some fuel. And that's the other piece of the diagram. I say that the quit zone is when capability meets opportunity fueled by frustration or a big idea, right? So let's talk about the fuel, right? So if you've got capability and opportunity come together and you feel like that's happened, that moment is upon you, uh, you know, then typically that's not enough to make people jump because if your frustration level isn't where it, it normally would be to take the leap, or if you're not pursuing a big enough idea, then you can't quite intersect those things enough to make the leap and make it work, right? So those things have to all come together. I love that. I love that because you're right. I think sometimes it is a matter of frustration that takes you out the door. And other times it's a matter of, of moving towards something. And yeah. if you don't have one of those, you're probably not going to have the motivation to move. So you talked in your book also about success being where preparation and opportunity meet. That's kind of mm -hmm. like the capabilities and opportunity mm -hmm. that you're talking about. And you talk about the importance of preparing to start your venture and you liken it to a wilderness 
hike or <laughs> flying an airplane. Tell us about that analogy. Yeah. And I like to say a multi-week wilderness hike. A multi-week. Okay. Multi-week. Not just yeah. Like in other words, wilderness hike, you know, for the day, nah, that's not a problem. You know, the spectrum starts when it comes to startup world, you know, the spectrum starts with a multi-week wilderness hike that includes, you know, the tents and the food and the trail planning and who you're taking with you and the risks and the bobcats and the physical terrain and the weather and all the things that would go, have you done it before? Who's done it before? We're going to be out there for three weeks. You can just imagine the amount of preparation and risk that would take, you know, to be successful at that or even have the boldness to do it. And so that's kind of on the low end of the startup risk effort, you know, preparation spectrum. And by the way, preparation, I'm glad you used that word because everything about that multi-week hike would be about preparation, right? I mean, all the things I listed including experience, having done some smaller versions of it yourself, right? Having done a a one day overnight or two or three day or whatever leading up to a multi-week. And then there are no startups that are less difficult than that and require less preparation than that, really. That's a good way to think about it. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I talk about wheels up or like flying an airplane. Now, I like to talk especially about the first time that you solo pilot and get that plane off the ground the very first time, right? The preparation that it took for you to be solo piloting the wheels up is a good bit higher than that multi-week wilderness hike. Because that multi-week wilderness hike, yeah, sure, you might get injured yourself. Yeah, you could die. A lot of bad things could go wrong, but chances are you could power through about anything in a three-week wilderness situation, right, with the right amount of preparation. But piloting an airplane, without the proper preparation and training, you will die. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it will not work. There are things that are physically true and, and universally true. And you put me, who has no experience flying an airplane and no training prep, you put me in a plane right now today, put me in there and say, here's the five buttons you need and give me a five-minute tutorial and say you're on your own and you've got no choice. But that is not going to be a good outcome. So that's the little spectrum that I right. like to play with. <laughs> I love that analogy, actually. You know, and it's a great analogy, I think, because we don't always think about starting a business that way. And so many people go out and just you know, they take the leap just because, you know, they start a restaurant just because they've eaten at one before, you know, just because you've been a passenger in an airplane doesn't mean that you have the capability to fly an airplane. Right. So, and then you, oh, wow. Yeah, you, so you it's think, a great, great example, I think. Yes. And the gauges, just learning the gauges and how to handle those and, and understanding the feedback that you need to be successful, even once you have that plane in the air, you know, is so, is so important. So, you know, a lot of the listeners to this podcast are students, and I get questions from students a lot of times about, should I start my company now or should I go work for somebody else? So if I'm hearing you correctly, I think you would probably advise them to at least get some work experience, if possible, in the industry space that they're considering. Is that true? I would. That is true. Absolutely. But here's the way I would put the exception out there. And I don't know if I can do this as scientifically as I would like, but I talk about in my book, the thing about entrepreneurship really, I think that fundamentally equates to success, of course, with capability and opportunity and the things we talked about, boils down to something called how bad do you want it, right? And is it completely consuming you, right? And and I apologize for using such flowery language, but is this uh, ticking and ticking and ticking against you every day, all the time? And is this something that you just have to do and it never stops calling? And I know this is true for so many entrepreneurs, especially ones that cross over and make it, like we talked about that fear of failure and that drive. So if I saw a young person that was in college, even before college, Rebecca, honestly, that just had 
the wherewith now they couldn't just have that. They've got to already be demonstrating some, you know, some ability in the market. You know, they're already hustling something already, or they're already working on something and they're already experimenting with something. They're already trying things. They're pulling people together. They're just doing it. You, you know, these people do exist. These students pre and post mm-hmm, sure. during college, and they you could they are is just who they are. And those exceptional people say that they probably should continue to just go and pursue that right? I think that you only get one shot sometimes at these things. And if you have that kind of momentum and that mindset, and it is just overwhelming, here's another reason I say to do it because A, you know, that's what you should be doing. And everybody knows you should be doing that. Number two, you would probably be miserable and do poorly in class anyway, in school, right? right? Right. So, you know, follow that. But that's such a one percenter, Rebecca. So what you're referring to right now, who you were referring to earlier, is the other 30% of people that are really smart, that want to be entrepreneurs, that are dabbling a little bit or even studying it or thinking about it, love talking about it, love being around it, following it, even maybe doing some experimenting, maybe doing all of those great things, probably not enough to overcome the importance of go ahead and A, getting your education and B, getting into a job and getting that experience so that you can find a real world problem. We know that also clearly from entrepreneurship, no problem, no business. You've got to find a real problem and you've also got to go out and find out what it's like to work with other people and, and get some experience, see things, get some bumps and scrapes on other people's dime, if you will, and wait for your time and wait for that intersection, right? So it's like a 1% situation, but for most, absolutely go, you know, get into the world, spend a few years in a job and then find again. And by the way, you shouldn't be thinking, I'm going to get a few years so I can be an entrepreneur. I think that's the wrong kind of thinking. You should say, hey, I'm going to go get into the forest, which is the job, and I'm going to wait for something to appear. Because ultimately, a lot of this stuff, it comes to you. Like, you can't manufacture. You Obviously, you can, but arguably, the best stuff is going to come to you. The right people are going to enter your life at the right time, the right idea, the right problem. If you force that stuff, you're likely to burn a lot of resources and bullets on something when you should have waited and waited for the the right things to intersect. I I can't emphasize that enough. Yeah. It feels like to me, if you're asking yourself that question, then it means you should get the experience because those one percenters that you're talking about, they're not asking themselves that question. And if you're asking yourself that question, you probably still have more to learn. And and I've (laughs) seen that with a number of my students who really wanted this lifestyle of an entrepreneur but they had not yet had their experience. And, you know, I can think of a couple right off the top of my head that it's very obvious. They went out and they had either a lot, in one case, a life experience, in another case, a couple of years in an industry, and they were able to identify a really big opportunity, but they had to have that experience. So if you're asking yourself that question, I think it almost means, yeah, you still have more to learn. And probably you need to get out there and experience that. You know, many entrepreneurs experience what you call the solo entrepreneur trap, trying to do everything themselves, which eventually leads to burnout and doubts, and which I think you talk about experiencing a couple of times yourself. Hmm. And you highlight the importance of a team. When is the best time to develop a team? Is it before you quit from the start, once you realized you need it, somewhere in between? Is there a rule for that? Oh, thank you for asking that. This is one of my favorite topics. And it, it ended up towards the end of my book, unfortunately. It's interesting when you write a book, some of your, the stuff you want to talk about sometimes can end up in the wrong place. And this was towards the end. And this is the one I love talking about the most because not only did I experience it myself, but unfortunately, I've, I've witnessed firsthand so many of my friends fall into this 
situation, there's different levels, not just the solopreneur trap and dilemma, which I'll you know, get into, the, but also even when they started building a small team, still continue to struggle with the, the following issues. So the first part is the solopreneur dilemma, right? And the dilemma really goes like this, where when you are breaking out as a solopreneur, anything from a, you know, a marketing professional to a photographer, to an event planner, to a programmer, to you know, any skill set that you might have, you might start you know, in that way consultant, advisor, coach, whatever, ultimately you love doing the craft of it, right? That's why you're doing it. You love doing the craft. You're really good. You're really, really good at it. That's why you're able to be a solopreneur. People pay you well for that. And you really take a lot of pride in every detail of it, right? And there's, and so that's what got you there, right? But unfortunately, as you start doing well, more and more business, you struggle to keep up. But then you enter these up and down cycles of new project, next project, last project. And when you're doing a project, this is mostly project-based work when you're a solopreneur. You can't work on finding your next one. So you end up in these valleys and peaks and valleys. And so you, you have times where you go too busy for a few months, and then you, you could go a few months and not barely have enough work, enough project work. And it's really maddening and it's really tough on your, on your finances. But it's the dilemma of, do I spend time developing new business or do I spend time delivering on my existing business? And almost every solopreneur I've ever known always goes to the delivering, right? Because they're just really, that's what they're good. Nobody likes to sell. Nobody likes to market. Nobody likes to network. And no solopreneur I've ever met likes to do that. So that's the dilemma. And then, but if you do break out of that, you know, which I've seen, you know, and ultimately you end up in a trap that way, right? A trap, meaning that if you end up just always going to, you're doing this and not growing the business, you ultimately end up trapped and that becomes your new normal where you're doing everything all the time and yours can clip off and you're exhausted and, you know, you don't have a lot of value to show for it. You can't sell your company because it's all dependent upon you. You can't even get vacations anymore. A few years down the road, it is a trap that you can find yourself just because you were so prideful and so about the work. And, and by the way, your clients love that about you. They are never going to stop you from being in the trap. They want you to stay in the trap, right? But then I watch companies grow from there. Sometimes they get some enlightened founders actually get wiser than that. And they start even creating teams, small teams to help. But then I watch them struggle with that as well, where they don't actually grow the team to run without them. Oh my goodness. So they build a team only to support, to say, hey, I need more help. You've heard the term, I don't have enough help, can't get enough good help, which is just right. the wrong right. language. But it, it's the wrong language. But ultimately, they're just looking, and this makes sense, that solopreneur I was describing is looking for more help. But ultimately, they should be thinking at some point, if they ever want to have wealth and freedom, and I talk about in this book, is wealth and freedom are the two things that you should have at the end of this run in 20, 10, 20 years, right? You should have wealth and freedom. Then you actually have to build a team that can work and run without you. And in, right. uh, have to run without you. And that's so hard for people to get their head around. Even I struggle with it. It's so hard to get your head around that. And I watch people, and we can name some names locally that have done it. And now they've, they've gotten their wealth and freedom, but that's how they did it, right? And then there's that little step in the middle that says the first step to that, building a team, is to give up the delivery, but keep the sales and marketing yourself. As the founder and the CEO, if you will, you're still the face, the energy, and only you can go out and win projects and close deals because the client wants you and you got to get used to this idea of going out and winning the deals and then letting someone else deliver and lightly managing. That's first of all, that is almost impossibly hard for so many solopreneurs to even make that step. But if they do that, they're halfway there because then they can start smelling and tasting the victory because then they're going, Oh, wait a minute. I'm actually detached from the delivery. The next, then over the next several years, the next big step is, can I get someone else to sell? 
and market and close deals. Now you're on the one inch yard line to wealth and freedom. You know, Alan, I'm listening to you talk and I love where you're headed with this. And it sounds like to me, it ought to be your next book. (laughs) Maybe you need to. That's what I said. I I put it at the end and I was like, this is what I want to really write about. And somehow it ended at the end. But yes, I I love this. Next book, you know, there's quit to start and then there's whatever the next stage is. After you you started, what do you do now? So especially, you know, in solo entrepreneurs, you're right. It's a completely different game really than starting a bigger company right from the start. And, you know, I can remember students. I had a student who was a great photographer and she wanted to start her own photography business. And when she did the financials and she realized how much of her time was not going to be spent actually bringing in money. She realized how hard it was going to be to make it go as a solo entrepreneur because she had to, you know, taking the photographs was what she loved, but there was so much, you know, there was selling and there was developing and all the other part billing and all the other parts that go along with that. You know, you've advised a lot of entrepreneurs over the years and you've been an entrepreneur. And I think one of the people that really influenced this book was your father. I think we talked about this not long ago in a different conversation that we had. He took a leap from employment to entrepreneurship and had an incredible impact on the development of your own entrepreneurial mindset. And I love that. I'm really curious about some of the essential success principles you learned from his journey. And maybe you might share a few of those with us. No, I I appreciate Rebecca. I appreciate you asking. It's it's often difficult for me to talk about because I lost my father a year and a half ago, really early. He was only 18 when I was born. Yeah, he was only 18 when I was born. And so he was not an old man. He was actually running his multi-million dollar business with full head of steam when he was struck by a cancer that he fought for several years and wasn't able to win. And so for when I think about my father, about entrepreneurship, you know, really, it was just kind of, you know, he was a self-made man. I thought he graduated high school. I learned recently he might have walked and didn't get the, I don't know. There's some controversy I just heard recently, <laughs> but he is, you know, high school graduate and basically self-made person with a multi-million dollar business that he had to quit to start. I think without getting into that, you know, that story, that was a pretty epic story about how he did that without any money, basically at the poverty line with our family. And then what he did from there. But your question was more about the influence and impact he had with me. And it was just this ridiculous tenacity and determination. And it was, it was unhealthy almost, Rebecca, really. Like so many first generation, honestly, first generation wealth builders, let's be honest, so many right. first generation wealth right. builders that have to pull themselves up from poverty or no education. It's just, they come up the trades. Like my father didn't have an engineering degree, but he worked in a quasi-engineering kind of industry, right? In the construction worlds. And surveying and mapping. And so, but he just became a machine of a person in terms of work ethic. And he just, you know, obviously first in, last out. And he he worked ridiculously amount of time per week for years and years and years. And then when with me, and I mentioned this in another interview, he wanted to make me kind of unbreakable, right? Because I was raised a bit on a a little bit of a ranch in the country. and, And so I was raised kind of country strong or country tough, as you will. And my dad you know, but he took it to another level. You know, it was some pretty brutal Southern raising, right? I grew up basically in South Georgia. And so, and at times, you know, as a kid, you don't understand why your, your father is being so hard on you because ultimately he's just trying to make you tough enough to face the world so that, and I've said before, he would break me so that others couldn't, so the world couldn't, right? So, and he did successfully in that. And I've carried that as a badge of honor forever. Like, I know that I'm unbreakable. I cannot be broken because of that. It's impossible. So that was what he put in me and I just watched him do it. And then I watched him lead people. He was such a strong leader. 
and he was just unbreakable himself. He just really put that in me and he put even our relationship at risk at times to make sure that would be in me, right? So that was the greatest gift he could have given me. And then I've just used that on and on. And honestly, the only thing I would say to that too is I got to grow up underneath a first generation entrepreneur that did it the hard way. And so, you know, if I could segue a little bit, I know that I'm a better coach than I am an entrepreneur. Honestly, I've had several entrepreneurial ventures. I've had some that were pretty impressive, but you know, I don't feel like I wasn't able to pull off the hockey stick success of my father. Right. But what I do have is I have the ability to put forward what my father put in me to other people. I know I'm a better coach than I'm an entrepreneur. So I know how to get the most out of people. I know how to pull it out of them. I don't necessarily say inspire them because it's got to be within you, but I know how to see it in you. I know how to pull it out of you and how to trigger it in you because my dad knew how to do that with me and other people. And also I was able to study an entrepreneur, not just him, but I went on to work. I like to say I was the best number two guy in the business. I went on to work. I was attracted to be the number two guy with multiple entrepreneurs over my career because I understood them without getting into another podcast. I'm like the CEO whisperer, I used to say. Right. <laughs> like that was my role. I was that guy because I knew the animal. It was my father. And I knew the people, the rank and file, because that was probably more me. But I knew the CEO founder. And to this day, I still have that. So I'm able to like translate. I'm like the translator, if you will. But I also know how to like, I can see right into them and see why they're so narcissistic or why they're so emotional and why they react just on and on and on. And that was just my dad. I learned it from just watching my dad. My dad was not a balanced, well-spoken entrepreneur. He could never do this interview like this, right? He just knew how to do it. He just knew how to do it. And I know you see this plenty, right? So that was my thing was I just got to be a student of that. And then I got to watch a lot of other people do it up close. And then that's why I think I'm able to be a pretty good, you know, coach and speaker and some, you know, and hopefully my class benefits from that. That's a great story. And I had no idea how much we had in common because I had a, I have an entrepreneurial mom who I lost about a year and a half ago too, who I learned at her feet as well. You know, and there's lots of research that demonstrates that role models have a big influence on entrepreneurship. You got a little Southern thing in common too, I think. Yeah. You can hear that in my accent a little bit, well, right? I think I might be more Southern than you. Yeah, well, I grew up in West Virginia, which is, okay, well, is kind of worse. mid-Atlantic, but, but still <laughs> I have a bit of that Southern accent, yeah, Southern yeah. style. You mentioned coaching and you are teaching a course, as you said, at the University of South Tampa, and you've done that for a while and South Florida. Mm-hmm. advised a lot of entrepreneurs in a lot of places, including in our low center at the University of Tampa. And and we love you jump, for that. Thank you I for have that. to jump in really quick and say something because I made it in my notes prior to this call. You know, I mentioned my students at USF, you know, pushed me for this book, but I, I'm not going to say who, but there was a student, well, there's two, there's two to three, at least two to three students at the UT program that I had a chance to work with personally in the lead up to this over the last couple of years. I wish I could just say their names. I just don't want to be doing that. That they also not only pushed me to do this book, But more importantly, there was this, like all the students, but especially the ones I worked with one-on-one, like I did with several of these UT students in the entrepreneurship program, your program, that it was like, how would I say it? And I get this feeling from a lot of students. It was like that they just expected this from me, like just expected it from me. So I felt like when I was going through the hard days and months of trying to write this thing and get it out the door, not letting them down was like a big driver. Back to that fear of failure, Rebecca. Honestly, right. this book had that, right? Not letting down. And the down. why. You had a why. You had honestly, a I have more one-on-one relationship with the UT entrepreneurship students than I did with the USF students. The USF students were, you know, big classroom and occasional some one-on-one stuff that was happening, good stuff there. But my one-on-one entrepreneur resident stuff in your program is a little more personal, honestly. So anyway, I just wanted to say that this book really 
I had to push this book out, you know, because there was no way I was letting down these young people. There's no way I could do it. Yeah, I love that. I appreciate that. And we thank you for the work that you do with them and with all the students. The people that you've worked with, some of them further along the path than students, you've worked with a lot of them. Is there anything that you could say differentiates the successful ones from the unsuccessful ones? A few things, a few traits or a few behaviors, perhaps? I always kind of go, and you can tell from this conversation, I kind of go to the superlative place, the fire and the will. You know, it's kind of this thing that is really hard to describe. People like to say, you're either born to be an entrepreneur or not. I do not agree with that. You either have an entrepreneurial fire in you or you do not, I think is a better way to say it. And by the way, that fire may be here this year. It may not be there five years from now or may be just the opposite. It comes at different times. I think everybody and anybody can catch this entrepreneurial fire. And once it gets in you, you can't deny it. You have to exercise it, right? So that's the one thing, even with students, I mean, put aside academics and everything in life and their background. It's like, you can tell, and I have one of your students in mind right now, and she is unstoppable. There's nothing going to stop this young lady. And it's unbelievable. I actually can't wait to go sit with her because I feel like I'm better off after because I'm like, this person is not going to stop. They're not even looking for me for coaching. They're just wanting to talk about what they're going to do anyway. And I get to listen and act like I'm helping them. This is for real. So that's it. It's simple. In the book, I say, how bad do you want it? And you know, you got to have it if you've got to have it. And, and ultimately, I just feel like my experience and all the ones that I've interviewed and know about and read about and study and adore and the famous ones and non-famous ones, that just always was the common thread. I love it. I love it. Well, this has been a phenomenal conversation. I could sit and talk even longer, but I do want to bring this to a closure with a question that I ask everybody on my podcast. If there's one piece of advice that you could give to our listeners, what would it be? It would be right along the lines of what we've talked about. Don't force entrepreneurship. Do not force it. Wait for it and let the conditions become right. You know, this whole idea of kind of making entrepreneurship happen is not a thing. So you can study all. I don't care if you're talking to who you're talking about, Henry Ford or Elon Musk. I don't, you can pick any of them. They were all, timing was very important, not just market timing, but also their personal timing, right? So that's the biggest thing I would say. Be patient. It might be two, three years from now, five years from now, even 10 years from now. And don't become too obsessed with trying to make that happen. So that would be the biggest advice that I would put out there. I love that. I love that. Alan, where can our listeners find your book and how can they connect with you? So it's quittostart.com is the book. And I've also launched planyourstart.com. They both work together, Plan Your Start and Quit to Start. Quit to Start, obviously, is the book. Plan Your Start, I came up with because I said, you know what? This title is so provocative. I need to make a safer place for people to go. Honestly, so I've got plan your start. So I'm kind of having fun playing with these two brands, but I'm on personally on LinkedIn, of course, and also Facebook and Instagram, all the social platforms. I'm just my Twitter is a little behind, but that's going to be be going soon. But really, on the social media, all platforms, and quit to start.com is a good place to start. Alan Clary, author of Quit to Start How to Discover Your Best Idea, Gain the Confidence, and Plan Your Escape. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Rebecca. It's a pleasure.